Hello and welcome to the First Baptist Church of LaGrange. What an honor it is to have you listening to our church broadcast today. We hope that as you listen along, following in your Bible, that you experience the grace and presence of Christ just as strongly as we do every Sunday in our worship service. May God truly bless you as you listen. There's a story written by a man by the name of Bret Hart, and it's a story about Roaring Camp. Roaring Camp. It was one of the meanest, wildest, toughest towns. It was full of murders, thefts, fighting, drinking, and all the men in the town, they worked at a mine. There was one woman, she was a Cherokee woman, and she lived there, and she cooked and did all kinds of cleaning and things for the men. Sadly, she died giving birth to a baby girl. Thus, the miners were left to take care of this baby girl. So they put the baby girl, they put her in a box. They, they found some just old cloth, some dirty cloth, and they just wrapped the baby up and put it in a box that they found. After looking at that, they said, you know what? That ain't right. They said, somebody's got to go to the next town and, and maybe get some stuff for this baby. So one man made the 80-mile trip, and he came back with this rosewood cradle. So the men took the dirty cloth, wrapped the baby back up, and put the baby back in the new rosewood cradle. They kept looking at it, and they're like, man, something still ain't right. So they made another trip, and they brought back some silk, and they got some linen, and they got some blankets, and they wrapped the baby up and put it in the cradle, but still something didn't look right because the floor was dirty. So they cleaned the floor. Once they cleaned the floor, something still wasn't right because the walls and the windows and the curtains were all just dirty and the curtains were just ragged and torn. So they washed and they cleaned and they bought new curtains. Those men loved that little baby. So every day when they went to work, they would set the baby in the cradle outside the mine and one of the men would take turns uh, caring for the baby. They would bring her all kinds of goodies from inside the mine, these jewels, precious jewels that they would find and put it in the cradle. And they, they planted a garden outside the mine to, to help take care of and feed the baby. Then they realized that every day as they began to bring her the gifts that their hands were just really dirty and nasty and their clothes were just smelly and stinky and that wasn't right. So the general store sold out of soap and men's cologne. You see, everything... Everything changed because of the birth of one little baby. And I'm here today to tell you that the Word of God says that everything changed, not in Roaring Camp, but in the universe, because of the birth of one baby. That baby was none other than the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to know there's some good news today because it's Christmas. Amen. The first Christmas, the angel of the Lord proclaimed good news, good news to a group of lowly shepherds. They said, for there is born unto you this day in the city of David, Christ the Lord. The very first Christmas, the angels proclaimed some other good news. They said, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. You know what I would say that no matter how special the gifts are that you receive today, no matter how good the food you enjoy, no matter how warm the fellowship, no matter uh, anything that you try to do, it's going to fail in comparison if you don't measure it up to what happened on Christmas Day. I would go further to say that our celebration of Christmas today is going to be utterly meaningless if it doesn't flow from our understanding of faith and gratitude for what happened on that first Christmas Day. And if I don't acknowledge, embrace, and reflect upon the true meaning of Christmas, 
I'm going to miss the true meaning of Christmas and all that we do in our culture with foods and parties and eggnog, or maybe you don't do eggnog, I'm not sure. Anybody do eggnog in that room today? Amen. I love y'all. Y'all are good people. So this morning, I want to tell you that, and declare to you that the good news of Christmas is essentially, listen carefully, the good news of Christmas is tied, I mean, inextricably. You can't separate it from the incarnation. It's, it's tied together there. And it's succinctly explained in a creedal statement that you find in the book of Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. So we're going to look at four aspects of the good news of Christmas through the lens of the incarnation this morning. So I'm going to be in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word, hopefully there's one in the seats there, kind of under the seats around you. You can hopefully look on your neighbors. You can look up here on the screen. You can pull out your phone, whatever you need to do. But Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. So I wonder if you'd stand together with me as we read from God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible word this morning. Here's a Christmas text message straight from God. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 through 5. The Bible says these words, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. You may be seated. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Here's the first thing I want you to see this morning. The perfect moment of Christmas is good news. The perfect moment of Christmas is good news. You see, the first promise of the coming of Jesus isn't in the Gospels. The first promise of the coming of Jesus isn't found in the prophets. The first coming of the Lord Jesus is found in Genesis where God is speaking to the serpent after the fall. In Genesis 3.15, the proto-evangelium is what we call it in the theological world. Uh, that means the first giving of the good news. God said, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. That's the first good news of what Jesus was going to do. Centuries later in Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3, God promised Abraham that he would have a son and that through his son all the descendants of the earth would be blessed. And several generations later, the promise of the coming Savior was given in the words of Genesis 49.10. Read these words, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, 12 through 16, God promised David that one day he would have a son sit on his throne whose reign would be everlasting. In Daniel chapter 9, 24 through 27, Daniel was given insight to the exact time frame when Christ would come to the earth. You have to remember that the Old Testament Jews knew these prophecies, and, and even though they might not have fully understood them, they understood enough to have a deep desire and a great expectation for the soon coming arrival of the Messiah. Yet when we reach the end of the Old Testament, the promise is still not fulfilled, but it's been repeated many times. In fact, between the end of the Old Testament with Malachi, the beginning of the New Testament in Matthew, God simply stopped speaking. And when the ministry of John the Baptist began, there had not been a prophetic voice for over 400 years. So when Jesus came on the scene, the Jews, who at that time were under Roman occupation, were desperate for the arrival of a Messiah. And when you look at it from a human standpoint, it seems as if God was just sitting on his hands. God was just dragging his feet. God was just simply wasting time or something. 
But that's from a limited earthbound viewpoint. Because notice what it says there. It says, but when the fullness of time had come. That's good news. The incarnation of Jesus took place according to God's sovereign timing. His providential orchestration is the perfect schedule of God. Christ was born in the fullness of time. Now, admittedly, you have to know this. We, we do not believe that Jesus was born on December the 25th. But even though we may not know the exact date of the birth, the fact is so significant that it split history between B.C. and A.D. And the life of Christ is the very hinge of history. Jesus is the blending of deity and humanity. He's the intersection of earth and heaven. He's the meeting place for time and all of eternity. And the Bible affirms that he invaded history and the fullness of time at the right time, at the appointed time. Think about this time. It was a time of prophetic fulfillment. It was a time of religious fervor. It was a time of international peace. The Pax Romana had been declared throughout all of Rome. It was a time of moral decline. It was a time of cultural harmony. It was in that time, the fullness of time, the right time that God sent his son in the world. See, what I'm here today to tell you is the incarnation was not a last-minute solution for sin. It was not a hastily thrown-together rescue mission. It, it was not too early. It was not too late. It was in the fullness of time. And so the first bit of good news proclaimed in the incarnation is God's timing is perfect. Because God is God, there are no such things as accidents. Nothing just happens, but everything happens according to his sovereign timetable. And God's timing is perfect. God is never late, and he is never early. He's always on his time. And he proved that by sending his son at the right time. Let me put a footnote here. Jesus is going to come again on time, too. I mean, he came the first time on time. He's going to come again on time. Amen? The Bible says in Acts chapter 17, verses 30 through 31, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he would judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Revelation 22, 12 through 13 says this, Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Jesus says, listen, I started all time, so I'm going to be on time. How many of you have opened your gifts before you came this morning? Anybody open gifts? I had a, a few of you. How many of you did it last night? Okay, okay, a few more. This is getting better. How many of you opened it a long time ago? You're like, you knew what you were getting for Christmas in July, and you're like, all right, Angie, I know. Like, hey, yeah, Bob, what you can get for Christmas, and, you know, y'all do that? You know, get it, and some of you probably got next year's Christmas present already. It's kind of how we work. I remember as a little boy, I received a gift from family members that lived in Idaho. For a time in my life, we lived in Idaho. One of the men that my mom married, we moved to Idaho for a year, and we had family members there, and they sent me this, this gift. And I, all I can remember for Christmas was this gift coming. Now, you got to remember, I'm not that old, but I'm telling you, where I'm from, this is kind of how it rolled. This was still the day where you were happy when you got an orange and a pack of gum for Christmas. Like when I went, I'm telling you, when I went to my uncle's and aunt's house, that's what they gave for Christmas. This is back in a time in the Appalachian Mountains where we didn't have anything. 
And so this gift came, and it was this thick, about this big, and it weighed a ton. I was so excited. I was beside myself about what in the world this could be. So one day, my mom and, and the people were out, and then they just kind of left me at the house alone. Bad idea. Y'all know what I did, because you have done it too, right? I went in there. I took that Christmas present into my room. I locked my door, thinking I was all sneaky. I threw the blanket over top of me. I mean, I made sure everything was kosher, right? And I started opening that thing up, and I saw what was inside that. You guys are never going to believe this, man. It, for me, it was so exciting. It was this science kit. It came with a microphone. Uh, 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 what's that thing called? A microscope? It came with a microphone, too. Two tables and a microphone. It was a microscope, right? And it had this Bunsen burner, and it had all these chemicals, man. There were every chemical on the planet. And it said, you know, build your own explosion. Make your own volcanoes explode, and all this stuff on the box. And it, I was like, this is a dream. So I put it all back together the best I could, and I slipped it back under the tree, and I waited so patiently until Christmas Day. Christmas Day came, and I opened the thing, and I was like, look, look. I was so excited. I pretended that I'd never seen it before. And the man that my mom was with at the time, he said, oh, I don't think we're going to have that. And so he took that present from me, and he, he took it downstairs, and he locked it in his tool bin. And he said, young man, you will never play with that because I don't trust you with anything. I was devastated. I could not believe that he had done that. And see, what made it worse was that I'd opened it before, and I'd already got excited. If I hadn't have opened it before and he took it away, I don't think I'd have been as discouraged. Here's the reason I tell you that, not to make you feel sorry for me, but if you do want to get me another gift, I'm st I'll still be here. You see, I messed up because I opened it early. And I'm just curious today, man, have you messed something up because you got ahead of God? You couldn't wait? Because God's got a time, right? And God says all things in their time and all things at their time. And sometimes when we get ahead of God, we can mess things up and then we can't enjoy what it is that God gives to us. That's why God sent Jesus at the right time. He's always on time. He's never late. You know, I heard about a man who was praying, and he was asking God some questions. And he said, God, to you, how much is a million years? Well, God said, it's just a second to me. Well, then the man said, well, God, to you, how much is a million dollars? Well, God said, it's just a penny to me. The man said, well, God, can I have a penny? God said, well, wait a second. <laughs> See, God's timing is different than our timing. So, so rest assured, the good news is, listen to me carefully today, that he answers your prayers at the right time. He'll heal your broken heart at the right time. He will give you the grace that you're longing for at the right time. He will bring you what you need at the right time because he sent the greatest gift, his son, at the right time. The perfect moment of Christmas is good news. But secondly, the passionate master of Christmas is good news. The passionate master of Christmas is good news because in verse 4, the second part of that is the key to this whole thing. 
that God sent forth His Son. Did y'all see that? This statement tells us how much the incarnation and Christmas cost the Father. It tells us about the passion of the Father, that God sent forth His Son. That word sent forth, it's made up of two words. The, the Greek ex, we get our word exit from it, means to go out of, and apostello means to be sent forth, to set apart. So it means that God sent forth or sent away His Son. It's a general term that can refer to sending an army off to war, commissioning a person for some duty, or even banishing someone. Paul uses it here to speak of the source, the master of the incarnation. God is the passionate master, the, the planner behind it all. God sent forth his son. And what you may not have noticed there is, is that presumes and assumes that you would know that Christ existed before he came. God couldn't just, he would say he had to make him to send him, but God sent forth. He already existed, and therefore God sent him forth. So Jesus existed and is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father before he came to earth as a baby. Furthermore, when a Savior was needed to be man's substitute, God just didn't send anyone. I mean, he sent his own son. And I declare the passion master of Christmas is good news because it tells us that when we need a Savior, Savior is what God sent, but he sent his very best. You see, when Adam and Eve ate us out of a house and home, God just didn't send Abraham. He just didn't send Isaac or he didn't send Jacob. God didn't send just Moses or Joshua. He didn't send David and just Solomon. God didn't send Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. God just didn't send the prophets, the apostles, and the angels. God sent forth his son. John 3, 16 and 17, you've heard it, but listen in light of Christmas. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believed in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He came to be our Savior. 1 John 4, 9 and 10, but this by this, the love of God was manifested in us that God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the covering for our sins. First John 4, 14, we have seen and testified that the father has sent the son to be the savior of the world. That is such good news. That's such great news. Imagine with me just for a moment, putting on your holy and sanctified imagination that you are a very bad, evil criminal who has avoided the law for some time. But finally, they catch you, and you're arrested, you're charged, and convicted, and sentenced. And the punishment fits the crime because you've murdered some people. Now you deserve to die. So you're given the death sentence. And after you've exhausted all of your appeals on a futile effort for a reduced sentence, that there you are on death row, you're awaiting your day of execution, and you're trying not to think about it. You're trying to ignore reality, but it keeps popping up in your mind no matter what you do. You are doomed, and you feel it. And you can't help but get quiet every time you hear footsteps outside your cell because you're wondering, is today going to be the day? And indeed, one day, those footsteps stop outside your cell, and the door opens, and to your surprise, in walks the judge who sentenced you. What are you doing here, you ask? And when you calm down, he explains that his heart went out to you as he heard your case. 
He wanted to do something to help you, but you were guilty. And justice demanded that you be convicted and sentenced. But today he comes to tell you that you are free to go. He tells you just to get your stuff and you're free to go. You don't ask any questions. You're like, man, this could be a trap or trick. I'm getting out while the getting's good. And so you just leave. But, but as, you're, as you're walking out, you notice that he has somebody with him who's coming into the cell. And you say, well, then who's, who's this guy? The judge tells you that somebody had to pay your penalty. Somebody has to die to pay the penalty. And he told the man that he had with him about your situation, and that man volunteered to take your place. And then the judge tells you, but, but I want you to know that this man has done absolutely nothing wrong. In fact, he's totally innocent, and, and as far as I know, he's the best man who's ever lived because he's my son. I want you to know, beloved, that's exactly what's happened with us. We are on death row. We're sentenced. We deserve to die. And the very judge who sentenced us asked his son, would you go take their place because he cared for us. He heard our plea. And Jesus, who was innocent, suffered the death sentence for us because of the passionate master of Christmas. There's none other than God the Father. That's good news, folks. Here's the third thing I want you to know. The personal manner of Christmas is good news. The personal manner. You see, before the incarnation and Christmas, I know this might be news, but God didn't have flesh and bone. And his attempts at love were often misunderstood, but in the incarnation at Christmas, God perfectly declared his love for us. God finally speaks in a language we can understand, and he did so by becoming one of us, In fact, that's what the term incarnation literally means. It means in the flesh. Paul says it this way, but in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Think about that. God sent forth his son. This can only be said of one person. That would be Jesus. But the phrase born of a woman, that can be said of every one of us. So much so that it's ridiculous for Paul to point out that Christ was born of a woman if he was no more than a man. But the fact is that on Christmas, the eternal son, the second person of the undivided trinity became flesh in the person of Jesus. Isaiah seven fourteen, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Luke 2, 7, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths, laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Philippians 2, 5 through 7, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ, who although existed in the form of God, did not require a godly with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. You've heard me say this before, but unless the Son of God became a Son of Man, the sons of men can never become the sons of God. The personal manner of Christmas is good news. I remember reading a story about a little girl who who heard sounds in the dark and she became afraid and she couldn't sleep. So she went into her mom and dad's bedroom and she's begging them to sleep in their bed, but they refused and they just prayed with her and sent her back to her room and told her to remember that God is always with you. 
Well, she went back to her room, and she tried to go back to sleep, but it didn't work. So quietly, she comes back into their room and begs the parents, can I get in the bed with you? And they said, no, sweetheart. Remember, God is always with you. And they prayed again, and it didn't work. So she came back into her room one more time, and, and this time they said, hey, didn't we pray with you, sweetheart? I mean, didn't we tell you that God's with you? I mean, baby girl, what, what's the matter? And she said, well, y'all have skin, and God doesn't. That's kind of what kids think, right? God is this just mystical person up in the sky somewhere that they need to touch God. They need to feel God. They need to see God. And I think we're all like that little girl. We, we, we get to points where God doesn't seem to have skin on because we can't, we can't see him. We can't touch him. We can't feel him. But, but that's what happened in the incarnation. God put on skin when Jesus entered Mary's womb. You see, Not only does the Bible teach that Jesus is God, but the Bible teaches that Jesus was human. Do y'all know that Jesus grew? That he lived? He actually ate stuff and he drank stuff? He slept? He cried? Jesus was not some phantom deity who came in the appearance of human flesh. Jesus was just as much a human as I am. The God who fills the universe became a baby like every other infant who's ever lived. He had to learn how to walk. He had to learn how to talk. Jesus had to learn how to put clothes on himself. Jesus became one of us so that he could personally relate to us. And he is my high priest who can sympathize with me and all that I go through. That's how Christmas personally matters to you and me. God loved us that night. That's good news. Lastly, very quickly, the purposeful mission of Christmas is good news. The purposeful mission of Christmas is good news. You see, salvation comes through the faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so in the incarnational is essential to salvation because it affirms the person of Christ. But you and I can't forget that the hope of salvation rests both in the person and the work of Christ. See, you may not know it today, but the incarnation in Christmas doesn't save anybody. Christmas doesn't save anybody. Martin Luther hit the nail on the head when he described Christian theology as theologia cruxis, a theology of the, of the cross. Yes, we praise God for the virgin birth, amen. Irreproachable and sinless life, amen. The matchless teachings of Christ, the astonishing miracles, the moral examples of Jesus. But listen, all of that would have held nothing for our salvation had Jesus not died on a cross. So while 4.4 proclaims the timing and the sacrifice and the manner of the incarnation, verse 5 proclaims the purpose of it. And so he says there in verse 5, so that, that's purpose, he might redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. So here's what we learn. First, that we are redeemed from sin and death. We're redeemed from sin and death. To redeem those who were under the law. The word redeem means to release by paying a ransom price. It's a commercial term that was used of buying slaves and purchasing the freedom of slaves in the marketplace. And that's a picture of our sinful condition. Jesus says in John 8, 34, Jesus answered and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Sin is the bondage from which we cannot get free in our own strength. And without a redeemer, the bondage of sin separates us from God, both for time and all eternity. Jesus goes on to say in John 8, 35 and 36, the slave, 
does not remain in the house forever. The Son does remain forever. So if the Son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. The only way you can avoid the holy wrath of eternal judgment is if the Son sets you free. And that's the purpose of the incarnation and Christmas. Jesus was born with the assignment from the Father to die on the cross where his blood would be the ransom that would set us free from the bondage of sin. Matthew 20, 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Ephesians 1, 7 says this, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Colossians 1, 13 and 14 says, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 9, 12, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained, what's this word? Eternal redemption. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, the last one. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. The purchase price for our redemption from sin was the blood of Jesus. He stood before God with all our sin upon him that we through faith might stand before God with none of our sin on us. He stood before God with all of our sin upon him so that we might stand before God with none of our sin on us. Think about that. He who was righteous was judged as unrighteous that we who are unrighteous should be judged as righteous. He was made for all of us that God would judge, and by faith in him, we're all that God cannot judge. At Calvary, Jesus paid a debt he did not owe for those who owed a debt that we couldn't pay. On that cross, God treated Jesus if he has committed all of my sins so that he could treat me as if I practiced all of Christ's righteousness. We are redeemed from sin and death through Jesus. It's good news, church. But secondly, we are received as sons and daughters. God just didn't say, well, you know, I'm just going to redeem you. I said, I want you. Now, I don't want you just like you are. I'm going to make you my son. I'm going to make you my daughter. Because the text says that we might receive the adoption as sons. The, adoption, uh, the doctrine of redemption is three-dimensional. You have to understand this in theological terms. First of all, we are redeemed from something. We're redeemed from the bondage of sin. Then we're redeemed by something. Redeemed by the blood of Jesus. So we're redeemed from and by, and the purpose of that is so that we might be redeemed to something. And that's to the adoption of sons and daughters. Hear these words, that we might receive adoption as sons. You see, when a man would redeem a slave, it was only for one of two reasons. It was either to set him free or to personally enslave him. But a man would never redeem a slave, take him home, and make him the heir of his estate. 
That's the good news of the incarnation and Christmas. God sent his son to the marketplace of sin in order to set us free from its bondage, but it doesn't stop there. For in Christ, not only does God redeem us, but he also adopts us. So the moment that you and I trust Christ, God takes us from slavery to sonship. John 1, 11 and 12, hear these Christmas verses. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him, but as many as received him. To them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Romans 8.15 says this, For you have not received a spirit of slavery, there it is, leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we now cry out, Abba, Father. Ephesians 1.5 and 6, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us, in the beloved. You've heard this before, but, it, but it's been said, if our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But here's the truth. Our greatest need was salvation, so God sent us a redeemer. The purposeful mission of Christmas is good news. I remember reading a story about one of my friends. I read one of his blogs one day, and I thought, man, this is just good news. I got to share this. But he had this friend, uh, this friend, and he had this wallet, and every time he walked into a store, you remember back in the day where they had those little things up, their little monitors, and it would tell you if you stole something from the store, you know, it would go off or something. Well, every time he walked into a store or walked out, his wallet would set that thing off. And so he would go in the store, meh, 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 and he's like, oh, here we go again. And so he'd just kind of do his thing, and finally he tried to figure out, so he took out his wallet one day, and he went all the way through his wallet, and he could find nothing. And so he moved some things around, he took some things out, gave it to his wife, and he tried to go out again, eh, eh, eh. So then he goes into the drugstore one day, and he's like, I'll tell you what I'm going to do, man. I'm just going to hold this thing above. I'm going to try to manage this thing. I'm going to hold it above my head, and I'm going to walk into the store. That way it won't get that. Well, sure enough, eh, eh, eh. he's like, what's the problem? So then he said, you know what? I'll try to explain this away. So he would send his wife in the store and say, listen, my husband's not up to funny stuff. He's not trying to steal stuff. He's not trying to cause problems, but he's going to come in. Just want you to know this is what happens every time we're in here. Sure enough, he came in, eh, eh, eh. He's like, what in the world? So one day, he was at the store. The alarm was going off. The manager came over. He's like, sir, every time you come in this store, we always have problems with you. What is the deal? And he's like, well, I don't know. Maybe you can help me. The manager's like, you know what? I have an idea. So he took it over to the register, and he rubbed his wallet over that little magnetic thing that they do. And he said, I think that might have fixed your problem. And sure enough, my friend walked out the store, and nothing happened. Here you say, what in the world has that got to do with Christmas and what are you telling us that story for? Here's what I'm going to tell you, friends. The things that offend God are going to set it off every single time. Our sin is ever before us. Everywhere we go, it'll set off the alarm. But we need somebody that knows what they're doing 
to remove the offense. We need somebody that's going to take us and remove our sin so that we don't offend God anymore. That's exactly what Jesus Christ has done. We can try to manage it. We can try to excuse it. We can try to rationalize it. We can try to apologize for it. But we need somebody who's going to remove the offense. The only one that can do that is Jesus. He was born under the law to redeem those under the law because he's the Savior. That's why the angels in Bethlehem said this. You remember this? In Luke 2, 10 and 11, But the angels said to them, Don't be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you someone who will take away the offense, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Here's what the hymn writer said, Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. You might not have noticed it, but I want to take you here in closing. I want you to see this. You have to see it with your eyes. Look in verse 5. In the last part of verse 5, it says that we might receive the adoption of sons. You see that? You and I are not forgiven because we deserve it. We're not forgiven because we work for it. We're not forgiven because we earn it. Independent of anything that we do, any good works that we do, anything that we try to do, God adopts us into his family through the agency of Jesus Christ and his perfect atoning sacrifice on the cross. And the good news of the incarnation is that in order to be saved from my sin, all I have to do is receive his adoption. That's all I've got to do is receive what God wants to give me. At Christmas time, you receive that gift. And God wants to give you the gift of Christmas. Jeremy, if you and Nate would come. Billy Sunday, I don't know if you know who he was. He's a great evangelist of about a century ago. Matter of fact, almost two now. Billy was was helping workers take down the tent after a meeting. He'd had this big evangelistic meeting in a tent when a young man came running in, and the young man was out of breath, and he, he said, Billy, 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 he said, I wanted to come to revival, but I missed it. But please tell me, what must I do to be saved? Billy Sunday simply responded to this young man. He said, it's too late. And he kept taking down the tent. The young man responded, just because I missed the meeting, you're not going to tell me how to be saved? Billy Sunday, with a smile on his face, says, yep, you're too late to do anything to be saved because Jesus has already done it all. All you have to do is just simply receive it, my friend. What good news. See, because of what Jesus did on the cross, you don't have to do anything. God has offered salvation free of charge through the offering as a beloved son and all we have to do is receive it. Here's a song we're going to sing. I'm going to give you a few verses. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die. Would He invoke that sacred head for such a worm as I? 
What it for sins that I had done, he groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond decree. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart was rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. Maybe this morning on Christmas Day, you would like to receive the gift of eternal life and be saved from your sin and give your heart to Christ and receive eternal salvation. And if that is you this morning, here in just a few moments, we're going to rise to our feet and I'm going to pray and I'm just going to ask you to come and and grab one of us by the hand and say, Pastor, today would be a great day to receive Christ. Tell me about this, Jesus. I I need this forgiveness. If that's you today, I I beg you to come. I beg you to come grab us by the hand and pray with us and let us let you receive the gift of Christmas. Would you stand to your feet with me? Some of you today need to come and just pray and thank the Lord for his faithfulness to you this past year. Maybe some families or couples or even singles that are here just need to come and spend the last Sunday in church at the altar just praising God. Or maybe it is this morning that you need Jesus. Today would be a good day to give your life to him because he's already given his life for you. Lord God, I pray right now through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would save any and all who do not know you and that we would be able to worship you like never before on this Christmas day. In Jesus' name.